Thank you, Matt. Jesus tells us in John 15 to abide in Him and allow His Word to abide in us. And if we do that, we will bear much fruit and bring glory to the Father. We're going to be uh, continuing in our study of the anatomy of the church this morning, but before we get there, I want to say a word to you if you have come this morning and you are you're hurting. Um, you know I'm about as mystical as a rock, and yet um, from Friday on, I, I really felt pressed to to say that God has not forsaken you, and He is very aware of your hurt and your pain and your suffering. And um, if you have a specific need, uh, if you don't know Christ, if you're wrestling with something, at the end of the service, uh, I'd love to talk to you. I know a lot of other people would. Jesus cares for His people. He cares for you. Um. And actually, this series is an evidence of that. You say, how? Jesus cares so much for His church that He gave His life for it. And if He would do that, He would not leave it without structure, without direction, without specifics. And so, even as you listen to the anatomy of the church this morning, don't, don't get, get lost in... Um, and how does this apply to my specific hurt? The way it applies to your specific hurt is that if Jesus would care for His church that much to write it down, He surely cares for you. So I want you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to begin there this morning. We're going to go to a, a number of passages. Last week we looked at an overview and in found indeed the Bible does give a specific design for the household of God. How does God intend for His church to operate? How is it led? How is it governed? Does the Bible give a definitive model that is prescribed? We acknowledge that there are certain things that the Bible leads up to a local congregation, but what is very clear is a is a is is an anatomy that that rises from the pages of Scripture. I have summarized a biblical model as the church is pastor or elder-led, deacon-served, and congregationally affirmed. I told you I wrote that in my uh, the document that I provided to you 13 years ago. And when you look at the whole of the New Testament, the church's anatomy begins to become very clear. The Anywhere you look in the local church, there is a plurality of leaders, plural elders, also called pastors, leading it. The church has deacons serving the elders and the body, and then the church is congregational in nature, meaning it governs its own affairs. It's not subject to an outside hierarchy. Even when there were apostles and prophets, they gave counsel, gave guidance, they, they gave the authority of Christ, but then that local congregation was left to work out those, those angles. And if you break it down, we said there, the parts, there are three major features to the church's anatomy. There's the visible leaders. As I said, used multiple, uh, there, there are multiple titles for that. There's the exemplary servers better known as deacons, and then there's maturing ministers. And God uniquely uses those parts to govern 
His church. And I'm going to show you this morning where the visible leaders come from. We're going to look at each one of those. And this morning we're going to be looking at the visible leaders. How do we get pastors in a church? Where do they come from? Can somebody appoint themselves? Are they made at, at seminaries, like, like a car, and that you call a seminary and you order one, and then you get to pick all of your, you know, I want, I want air conditioning and, uh, and, and four-wheel drive or whatever. Well, it's not a haphazard placement, as we're going to see in the Bible this morning. The Lord Jesus has given His expectations for those He places in care of His sheep and for the purpose of preparing His bride. You are being prepared this morning for the moment in which you will, will stand before your Savior, the one who, the one who bought you with His blood. You, you are being prepared like, like a bride for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus does not place leaders in the church that He died for, like calling a temp agency and saying, send me over whoever's available, I have some filing that needs to be done. Would you agree with that? No, He's very active in the process. He's very particular in His placement. Jesus calls them, He equips them, He prepares them, just like He did James and John. He, he commands them to feed My sheep, just like He did Peter. And, and He qualifies them by His Word, just like He did Timothy. The church of Jesus Christ has visible leaders. I say visible leaders, not to, not to go the way of John Maxwell, where there's visible and invisible leaders. When I say visible leaders... Pastors, elders, and deacons are part of a congregation. They're not a, they're not a, a special group or a, or a separated group. They're part of a congregation. And yet, this morning, you sit there, I stand here, and there's a reason for that. I'm no different from you other than what Christ has called me to do in, in His church. They're visible leaders. They're set apart to lead, to feed, and shepherd the flock. And the Bible tells us where they, where they come from. And so this morning we're going to be talking about the origin of the visible leaders in the, in the church. Now when we get to their qualifications and what we do, we'll, we'll actually be in the book of Titus. And that will be very, that will be a lot more comfortable for me. I'm going to say, Here's the passage, here's the beginning, here's the end, we're going to walk through it. We're going to be topical again this morning, and we're going to be looking at the whole of the New Testament, grabbing all of that and, and, and crystallizing it or distilling it into, into the origin of visible leaders. And when you do that, there are four things that become very evident. They are gifts from Christ to His church, Ephesians 4. They're equipped by the Spirit... They're trained by elders and they're acknowledged by the church. That's where the visible leaders come from. Let's look at the first one. They're gifts from Christ. In fact, elders in a church are part or a portion of Christ's promise that He makes long ago. Now, everything God does originates from Him. And a lot of times in the Bible, he makes a declaration long before he brings it to pass. We call that a promise. God made a promise to Abraham that he would be a great nation long before it ever happened. Before Abraham even had the first son, he said, you'll become a great nation. That's a promise. God promised an everlasting throne to David long before the Lord Jesus Christ ever came on the scene. You 
If you're saved this morning, are a promise that the Father made to the Son in eternity. And yet here you are, part of the, part of the redeemed. Did you know that Jesus did the same thing with His church? He made a promise. You know the passage well. In Matthew 16, the Lord made a promise to build His church before it was ever formed. When the disciples first declared that Jesus was the one who would take away sins at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus said, upon that, that truth, that rock, that foundation, I will build my church. You've heard that probably your entire Christian life, but did you realize that's a promise and that pastors are, are an outflow of that promise? It's part of what Jesus is doing, fulfilling the promise that He made in Matthew 16, that's a promise. And everything that Jesus does from that point forward is part of that promise. It involves more than just saving people. We think, I will build my church. That means I'm going to add people to it. And surely it, it doesn't mean less than that. And at Pentecost, the church was born. Jesus makes the promise in Matthew 16. And at Pentecost, Acts 2, the church is born. The atonement at that point had been made. The Father has accepted it by... Uh, uh, Approving that by raising Jesus from the dead. Jesus has ascended into heaven. He's given the commission to the disciples to go be his witnesses. But first, he says, go to Jerusalem and wait for something. You remember what he says to wait for? The empowerment of the, of the Spirit. And Pentecost was the moment that the Spirit came with special power to inaugurate the church. You remember Acts 1-8 probably very well. You'll receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. Or, but you'll be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And in Acts chapter 2, after Peter witnesses, after he obeys this, receives the power of the Spirit, obeys this, the Bible says in Acts 2 chapter 4 that were added that day about 3,000 souls to the, to the church. And everyone since has become part of the ecclesia, part of the church of Jesus Christ, by the work of the Spirit started on that day. That's ecclesiology, study of the church 101. But I want, what I want you to understand this morning is that Jesus promised He would build His church before it ever came to pass, and everything that the Lord does from that moment on is the fulfillment of that promise. Sending the Spirit to begin with is part of Jesus fulfilling His promise to build His church. Providing the New Testament that I preach from this morning is part of Jesus' promise to build His church and granting apostles and prophets, evangelists and pastors and teachers is part of Christ fulfilling His promise to build His church. They're part of His design. And that's exactly what Ephesians 4 details for us. Look, if you would... At verse 1, this is part of Jesus fulfilling His promise. He gave gifts to His church in order to build it. He gave the, the Spirit to empower them, and now He gives the gifts. Which I'll show you exactly who that is in a minute. Now look at verse 1. This is amazing. Paul starts with his typical encouragement in light of the truth they just received. Therefore... Therefore, in light of Ephesians 1-3, through 3, how the Trinity is involved in your salvation... Therefore, in light of Ephesians 2, when you were, you were dead and now you've been made alive. In, in light of Ephesians 3, which is Jesus is building a church made out of Jews and Gentiles. Now in verse 4, therefore, walk, live your life in a manner worthy of all of that. That's what he's saying here. 
But I want you to look at verse 4. Because he adds further motivation. Besides chapters 1 through 3, further motivation for his call to live a life, live in a way that's worthy. He reminds us that we're part of Christ fulfilling his promise to build his church. Verse 4. There is one body and one spirit just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father overall. We are part of the body. And one and the same Spirit places us there. And we all have an individual purpose, and it's part of His design. Look, if you would, at verse 7, after He encourages us that we're part of Christ's promise to build His church. Look at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when He ascended up on high. Now, I want you to notice it's Christ's gift, not the Spirit's gifts. Do you see that? It's particular. Jesus, the emphasis on Jesus giving something to His church, not us receiving something like 1 Corinthians 12. There is one body and the same grace, but unique gifts that come from Christ, and that's a gift that Christ has given to His, to his church. That's the measure of Christ's gift. And it describes how he bestows those gifts on his church in verse 8. Some people just kind of skip over verses 8 and 9 and, and, and 10 and just jump to verse 11. But, but this, is, this is important, powerful. Jesus earned the right to give gifts to his church. Verse 8, when it says, when he ascended up on high, it's a quote from Psalm 68. It's, it's, a, it's a song that David wrote after he'd conquered Jerusalem and he'd ascended Mount Zion. And it's a reminder that what would happen when a king would conquer in a battle, he would, he would collect the spoils and, and the captive prisoners in his home country and he would parade them through, through the city in, in triumph. And Paul says when Jesus finished his battle on earth, he returned to glory with the spoils that he won. Do you know who the spoils are? They're you. <laughs> They're me. You and I are what Jesus Christ won on the cross. I think he got ripped off, don't you? <laughs> it's a pretty raw deal. Well, Jesus doesn't think he got ripped off. That's the amazing thing about the gospel. It says he went to the cross with joy for you, purposefully, knowing you in particular. We were, who were once citizens of, citizens of Satan's kingdoms, uh, kingdom are now part of Christ's kingdom because of what He accomplished for us. He rescued us through the cross. Jesus conquered death, sin, and Satan, and He triumphantly returned to the Father, sat down at the right hand, having finished His work, taking His captives with Him. Ephesians 2 says we're seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. That's not all he does. He also distributes those treasures throughout the kingdom. We're seated in the heavenlies in Christ this morning. The Bible tells us that. But we're also right here in the midst of his church. Jesus takes the spoils to heaven and Jesus distributes the treasure throughout his, his kingdom. Verse 8, it says, When he ascended up on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He descended to the earth. That's what verse 9 is talking about. He defeated Satan. He won prisoners. 
I don't believe verse 9 means He ascended into hell. It means that He came from heaven to earth, He accomplished the work on the earth, and then He ascended back up into, into heaven. He defeated Satan, won prisoners, frees them, and then gives them His gifts to His church. And Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of the universe. That's what it means at the end of verse 10. Far above the heavens so that He might fill all things. Now look at verse 11. Because all that's intro to here. Verse 11 actually defines some of the gifts that Jesus gave to His church to build it. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. The purpose that He gave them in verse 12 for the equipping of the saints, the goal of their work is the maturity of the saints and so that you wouldn't be tossed about by error. Mike read that to us this morning. That verse says that Jesus gave visible, purposeful leaders to His church to fulfill His promise to build it. That says that if you don't have elders or pastors or whatever you want to call them in a church, it's dysfunctional. It may be that temporarily, and you may have the goal of of, of placing them there, but they're part of Christ's plan. The apostles and prophets laid the foundation in the book of Acts, and Jesus gave missionary evangelists and pastors and teachers to His church to build on that foundation until He returns. That's what it says. It also says when somebody asks me, what do you think you are God's gift to the church? I can say, well, yes, as a matter of fact, I am. But this verse also says I can't take any credit for that, right? I was in the slave market of sin. I was in the kingdom of Satan. And Christ came and won me. (laughs) And He seated me in the heavenlies and then He distributed me to, 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 to spend and be spent for His church on the earth. And He gives visible leaders in order to do that. That's why we have elders, pastors, shepherds. And that's why we must follow a biblical model of church governance. All the other models that people have designed trying to improve on Christ's design will fail. The CEO model, the board of directors model, the team leadership model, the democratic congregational model. I know of one church declared that there are no leaders in the church. We're all equal in Christ, so nobody will be, will be a, will be a leader. All of these and more will be thrown on the trash heap of history. There's one Lord overall, and He has gifted His church so it will grow up, and so it will Grow out. But that's not all. Where do these visible leaders come from? Christ gives them as gifts to His church. But then the Spirit is involved in accomplishing that. They're gifts from Christ. They're a portion of His promise. They're part of His design. And then they're equipped by the, by the Spirit. For God's church. And by God's choosing. Turn, if you will, over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We read this passage last week. I'm going to make you love exposition by the time these two sermons are over because you're going to get tired of turning everywhere. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Jesus gives leaders His gifts to His church and the Spirit applies the gifting to those who will serve in that capacity. 1 Corinthians 12. We read this passage last week and you'll, you'll note 
It's the chapter dealing with spiritual gifts. Probably very familiar to you. I'm going to show you how it applies to the leaders in the church. Look, if you would, at verse 4. Paul says in verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, verse 4, Now there are a variety of gifts with the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Starts with the big picture. Big picture. There's the Trinity. whole Trinity. Part of the work. The Spirit, the Lord, and God. But the Spirit's work is the focus. Verse 7 makes that plain. Look at verse 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. No matter what gift is given, it's an evidence of the Spirit's work. They are the manifestation of the Spirit. That's what verse 7 says. They manifest Him. They display Him. You know how you can tell the Holy Spirit's work? It's not somebody who's, you know, who's hopping on one leg down, down an aisle or, or, or flailing on the floor or falling out or anything else. This says the manifestation of the Spirit, the way that, that the Spirit puts Himself on display, the way that you can tell it's the Holy Spirit is He does that through, through spiritual gifts. The spiritual gift is manifest. The Spirit is manifest when somebody exercises that gift. When somebody ministers to you in mercy or encouragement, and it actually, it actually ministers to your soul. That's an evidence of the Spirit. When you're particularly helped by listening to a sermon, that's the evidence of the Spirit. That's how He manifests Himself. Spiritual gifts are not natural talents or skills or abilities. But notice what else it says. It's the manifestation of the Spirit given for the common good. All of the Spirit's gifting is for the common good, for the building of God's church. There are two basic categories of spiritual gifts in what follows, and we don't have time to go into that, verses 8 through, through 11. They're word-based gifts, and they're serving-based gifts. I understand spiritual gift tests and how many are there, are they... You know, six, seven, nine, seventeen. Simplify it. There are spiritual gifts fall into two categories. They're word-based gifts and they're they're serving-based gifts. Word-based gifts, prophecy, knowledge, wisdom, teaching, exhortation, serving or nonverbal gifts, helps, giving, faith, discernment, leadership. All of those are serving nonverbal. Yes, I'm exercising this morning a word-based gift, not my own. And if you're saved, you have one or more of these gifts, which were granted by the Spirit at salvation. And this passage says it was given to you for the common good of the church, for the building of the church. It's how Christ is fulfilling His promise. Now think about that. Whenever you think about some of the wild and wacky ways people deal with spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are given by Christ, by the, uh, uh, by the Spirit, from Christ, for the common good. So He can fulfill His promise to, to build His church. And the common good, Ephesians told us, is growing the church into maturity. Elders, elder, for the common good or maturity of the church. Deacons, serve for the maturity of the church. You exhibit mercy or whatever it is for the maturity of the, of the church. Not so you can have something to do. Not so you can exalt yourself. God knows what His church needs. 
And you and I don't choose the gift we get. God does. That's the second part. It's for God's church. It's by God's choosing. Look at verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, all these different kinds of gifts, word-based gifts, serving-based gifts, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. Look at verse 18. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. Look at verse 24. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it, but God has composed the body, given more abundance, uh, more abundant honor to that member which lacked. God composed the body. Verse 26. And if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all members rejoice in it. And God appoints that as well. Verse 28, God is appointed in the church first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers. You think there's a theme there? The theme there is the Spirit sovereignly and supernaturally equips the visible leaders and all the other people in the church that Christ gives to His church. Where do visible leaders come from? They're gifts that Christ gives to His church. Then they are equipped by the Spirit to do that work. And then... Those who are already leading, recognize them and do the training. Look at number three. They're trained by the elders. Something else has to happen to make them ready to leave. Christ gives these offices, these individuals as gifts to the church. The Spirit grants the gifting. But something else has to happen. Current leaders of the church recognize their character and then recommit the truth to them. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. If the Spirit calls you and gifts you at salvation, does that mean that a person can then start leading on his own? Well, that's what a lot of people do. Who identifies the leaders in the church that Christ has given? Who prepares them? Who trains them? Who sends them? Who oversees that process? You say, well, ultimately Jesus does. That's just exactly right. But how does Jesus do that? Jesus does that through is church. We've covered some of this several weeks ago, but it's good to see it in the context of, of our series. I'll give you would at verse 1 of, of chapter 2. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is the last letter that the Apostle Paul writes to, writes to Timothy. It's after he has placed Timothy in Ephesus. It's after he wrote 1 Timothy. It's after he wrote Titus, both of which gives us the qualifications. And Timothy was a local church pastor. 
And Paul gives instruction to him, which provides the pattern for all their churches to follow. And if you go back to the book of Acts, where is Timothy located? Where's Timothy a pastor? Timothy is a pastor in Ephesus, right? And before the apostle Paul goes on his, uh, on his prison journey, he calls the elders, plural, of Ephesus together. And he tells them to beware about wolves that are coming in to shepherd the flock of God. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And now he's speaking to Timothy, obviously the lead elder amongst those elders there, and he gives a pattern, some instruction and a pattern for all of us. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, you be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then commit what is retained, what is guarded to other men for ministry. That's what it says. This is a command for the current visible leaders to train future leaders that Christ gives, that the Spirit equips. I can't make a pastor. The current pastors here can't just pick somebody out of the congregation that seems to be a good orator, that seems to be well-liked by everything, and say, you know what, I think they would make a, a really good pastor. If Christ and the Spirit have not gifted them for that and, and given them for that task, then that labor is, is futile. You're, you're pouring money down a rat hole, as my dad used to say in a lot of, a lot of circumstances. But if Christ has given them and the Spirit has gifted them without the training and the mentoring that Paul talks about here, where their character is recognized and the truth is recommitted to them, not in something new, something that is very old, the Word of God itself, then they're not going to be able to fulfill their, their task. This is a command for elders to train elders that Christ gives and the Spirit equips for the church. All Christians are to be disciples all are to be in some form of ministry, but the visible leaders that God calls are to be prepared for this task. This is what this says. They're to, they're to purposely commit a body of truth to them. There's a particular content. Look at verse 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. This is not Paul's new bestseller. This is apostolic doctrine in the presence of many witnesses means it was not Paul's private interpretation. The specific teaching, clear doctrine, handed down once delivered to the saints. It's our common salvation of Jude 1.3. It's what was supported and confirmed by the testimony of other apostles, of other teachers. That's what this means. What you have heard from me in the presence of many Witnesses, that particular content, you're to commit to a specific group of people. Look at what it says. The things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men. And there's the specific group. Faithful in truth, faithful in life, faithful in character. And then there's a definite purpose. What are they going to do with it? Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. They'll pass it on so that they will equip others. They'll equip the saints, and they will particularly equip the, the new leaders that are coming. We're to replicate the approved and tested doctrine to other, others. 
Now, we're looking at where the visible leaders of the church come from. How do we, how do we get elders and pastors in a local church? And we're going to look at the characteristics by which you can recognize them. What are the marks of faithfulness? So, I'm not going to go there this morning. But did you know out of all of the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus, all the qualifications that the Bible gives for a pastor or an elder, there is one primary skill skill that's mandated. They must be able to teach. Must be able to teach. Not an option. First Timothy 3 and Titus gives the qualifications and all the character things that are there. They are vital. They should be in your life. They must be in an elder's life. They're above reproach. They're a one-woman man. You know the list. Temperate, prudent, respectable. All of them are character qualities except one. He must be able to teach. It's the only qualifications that, that, that really distinguishes an elder from a deacon, as far as the qualifications are concerned, because they have a different task. Deacons hold the faith in a good conscience, but they're not commanded. Their task, their primary task is not to, to preach and teach the Word, to shepherd the flock. And therefore, the differing qualification for an elder is he must be able to teach. Preaching and teaching is the overseer's primary task, whether that's in the pulpit, whether that's in the pew, whether that's in the counseling room, Sunday school class, wherever it is. A man of God must be able to go to the Bible and know what it says and then accurately communicate that to God's people. I said nothing about seminary. I said the man of God must be able to go to the Bible and know what it says, and be able to accurately communicate that to God's people. If he doesn't have that skill, he cannot and should not be an elder or a missionary. Period. I mean, it's it's not my deal. It's, It's what the text says. It's like being a pitcher and not being able to pitch, right? Being able to teach doesn't mean that he's a skilled orator. The Apostle Paul, over and over, his testimony is... When they first laid eyes on him and first began to listen to him, they thought, who is this guy? I mean, he's a nobody. And yet, as he began to open his mouth, given by Christ, equipped by the Spirit, and then trained, he begins to speak, and God does stuff. He must not be a Bible hack. He must be skilled with the Word because... His only transforming tool is the Bible. So where do men learn how to handle the Word and what the Word says? Well, the Bible says that the Spirit will tell them. You don't need anybody to teach you. Well, that's totally out of context. Without the Spirit, you can't understand. But that doesn't mean that you're not to learn, you're not to, you're not to study, you're not to learn tools, right? Where do you get that? Well, Timothy, Paul says, as a current leader, you mentor them. If you're serious about becoming a pastor or going as a missionary or any other word-based task in the church, you need to place yourself under godly elders and learn until they're ready to send you. Let me give you the final one. They're acknowledged by by the church. Visible leaders are acknowledged by the church body. They serve. Christ gives... Elders as gifts, the Spirit equips them, other elders train them. 
And the final way we identify them is the church body. The church body sets them apart and then submits to them. When does someone become a visible leader, as we're, we're calling it? When does somebody come and become an elder in a church? When they complete a seminary? When he starts working full-time for the church? When other elders appoint him? The simplest way to answer that is when the church body publicly recognizes them as an elder and then submits to them. The Bible calls it the laying on of hands. It means the appointing or commissioning of someone to a specific office or task. The, the laying on of hands. I choose this person. I, I, I'm a, I am identifying this person with the laying on of, of hands. You can see that pattern all through the New Testament. The seven men who were chosen to serve the church in Acts 6 were set before the apostles and they prayed and they, they laid their hands on them. In Acts 6, that doesn't mean laid their hands on them. It means laid their hands on them. The Spirit chose Barnabas and Saul from the church in Antioch in Acts 13. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They appointed them. They acknowledged them. Paul told Timothy not to neglect the gift that was given to him by prophecy when the council of elders, when the presbytery laid their hands on him in 1 Timothy 4.14. In 1 Timothy 5.22, Paul warns Timothy, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, meaning new elders. Don't be too quick to take somebody who's 20-something, even if they're really good in Greek and Hebrew, and stick them in the pulpit and give them spiritual responsibility. That's a train wreck. That's, that's Brian Farrell paraphrase of 1 Timothy 5.22. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. What does it mean, laying on of hands? Actually appointing them to a, an official public position of an elder. Now, it's interesting, in every one of these cases, prayer, careful prayer is emphasized because the apostles follow the same pattern as their Lord. They prayed in Acts 6, the church fasted and prayed, and then sent them off in Acts 13. It's a serious thing. And so we're to take it seriously, and that involves the whole church body. The whole church body acknowledging them. The current elders recognize their character, commit the word to them. They're the first to recognize their gifting, because that's what they're tasked to do, they're able to do, they're able to discern doctrine and refute error. But then they're set apart, they're set before the whole body. And to be appointed to the office of an elder implies that a man has met biblical qualifications, he's been called by God, he's been recognized by the current elders, and finally, he's been publicly recognized by the church as one who holds that office. All the passages talk about the laying on of hands. And it's the apostles or the elders that, that identify them, that appoint them, that lay their hands on them, but that's done before a congregation. Who are they appointed over? Just the amorphous blob out there? No, they're appointed over a local church that acknowledges that. And when the current elders believe a man is ready, he's selected, set before the church, and they recognize him as one of Christ's gifts. And they do that ultimately by submitting to them. They're set apart, and then they're submitted. We saw this last week. But it's a pivotal text. Hebrews 13, 17. 
Obey your leaders and submit to them. Who are your leaders? Whoever you like. Who has Christ placed over you that you are commanded to submit to Him through them? And if you don't, you're being disobedient to Christ. That, I mean, that, that's how strong this passage is. Who are they? Well, we're talking about how they're identified. Who are the ones that keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account to Christ on their behalf? This is the final and crucial step. You submit to Christ through those that are given, equipped, and trained, and then set before you. And you acknowledge, you thereby acknowledge that, yes, they are elders. They are Christ's gifts to the church. You're not submitting to the man. You're submitting to Christ, mediating rule through, through, his, through his word and his gifts. Remember, a pastor has no authority as a man or as a position. The only authority he has is Christ when he speaks the word. What I'm speaking to you this morning is, is not my word. It's Christ. And ultimately, what is... That's when the process is finalized. They're acknowledged. In our church, there are three men where this entire process has, has been completed. All of those, all of those four, four identifiers, if you will. Myself as the senior pastor or lead elder. This church called me, acknowledged me, voted on me, even though the way in which we did it didn't match this exact pattern because that was then and this is now. Pastor Brody also meets that category as someone who's been placed before you and ordained. You've acknowledged him as an elder of this congregation. Pastor Jeff was commissioned and sent out by this church and now serves in your, in your midst. You have acknowledged that. There's, you've acknowledged the, the equipping you have of the Spirit, other men that were uh, here at that point in time that were, that were leaders poured into him and trained him, and then you as a congregation acknowledged him. It doesn't mean that others have, that don't have teaching gifts or aren't ministering in many ways. We have many missionaries in this church. But those are the three men in this church that meet all of those, all of those categories. Pastor Alley is no longer an elder because the church formally recognized him, his leaving the pastor unto missions. He didn't retire, right? He went to missions. Praise the Lord. Clay is not an elder yet. Even though he's been trained and recognized as gifted and is leading the college ministry, he's not been appointed and yet set before the congregation. Same goes for Matt, same goes for a number of other people. We're talking about the visible elders of this church. And three is not enough. <laughs> we hope to do... Through this process, what we hope to do through this process is to set several more men before you to help the pastors lead. I don't mean add more pastors to the payroll. <laughs> I mean add more elders that are gifted by the Spirit, that are equipped by the elders, that are then placed before you to acknowledge so that they can minister and shepherd to you. Some next year, some later. They may be laban, they may be... 
They may be otherwise. But regardless, whoever that is, and whenever that is, they'll follow this biblical path that is in the Bible that I laid out for you this morning. Next Sunday, I'll show you the qualifications for the men that meet those categories. The following Sunday, Lord willing, I'll show you specifically what they do. None of this is new. And all of this is Bible. Then after that, we'll go to deacons. And then after that, we'll go to the congregation. And then after that, we'll be done. And hopefully, Jesus will come before any of that's complete. Amen? Because that's when He's ultimately going to fulfill His promise. I will build my church. And that church will be with Him in heaven. And if you're part of that church, you will be with Him in heaven. And if you're not part of that church, He's expressed His love. He's willingly laid down His life. He calls you this morning to repent and believe. And you can then be identified as as part of that treasure that, that Christ took out of the world and then He'll actually use you. He won't leave you. He'll distribute you as His treasure somewhere in the church. You'll have a spiritual gift. You'll use it. You'll actually have true purpose in life, purpose in serving the King. Let's pray.